welcome to another episode of Monsters and Murder. I'm Sam. And I'm Shane. And tonight we're going to talk about some murder. Um, and it is the week of Thanksgiving, so uh-huh. we just want to say thank you for everybody that listens. Yes. And we hope you have a good turkey day and you eat lots of good yummy food. Mm-hmm. And you're feeling fat and sassy at the end of the evening. <laughs> and if you don't celebrate turkey day like we do in America, you should still eat lots of good food. Yes, yes. Nourish your body and your soul. <laughs> and if you are celebrating and then you go shopping on Black Friday... I hope you find good deals. Yes, absolutely. And avoid getting trampled by crowds and being part of the crowd that tramples people. (laughs) Yes, those Tickle Me Elmo's are so not worth it. No. (laughs) Um, So this one is, I usually, I feel like I give trigger warnings, but this one's going to come with a big one Mm -hmm, um, for rape, uh, brutality. It is a rough case. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and so we talked about, like, I didn't tell you what I was covering this morning, but I had briefly mentioned it, and you said you wanted me to wait until tonight to tell you. Uh-huh. So I'm going to be talking tonight about the murder of Crystal Fay Todd. Okay, this does sound familiar. I have a little familiar familiarity with it. Okay. Um, not just from other podcasts, because I have heard it on other podcasts, but I also feel like I've seen something on ID about it. Yes, so I got the bulk of my information from a book called An Hour to Kill by Del Hudson and Billy Hills. Mm -hmm. And then there's a Forensic Files episode about the case, which definitely took some artistic liberties with the information they gave. Uh And an episode of Stolen Voices, Buried Secrets, which I don't think it's on anymore, but it was on ID. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, the Forensic Files sounds a lot more familiar. Yeah. So, um, but the Stolen Voices, Barry Secrets, that was a really good episode. And both have interviews with her mom, which is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not good, but it has good information if you are wanting to know more about the case. Yes. Um, but the book, again, this book is so good and goes into so much detail. So if you want to know more about this case, please get that book. Um, okay. So let's just start out. All right. Um, Crystal Faye Todd was born in Conway, South Carolina on January 4th, 1991. Conway is the town seat of Horry County, South Carolina. We're back in Horry County. This is my second Horry County case. Yes. Oh, Horry County. And, yeah. and unfortunately, I think the rate has grown over the years for not so great things happening there. Yes. <laughs> um, when Crystal was born, her parents, Junior and Bonnie Faye, were much older in life. Well, much older for the time being. She, oh, she was not born in 91. Sorry. She was born in 74. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. She died in 91. Sorry. We'll get there. It has been a rough couple. Well, today has been actually kind of rough. Anyway, <laughs> beside the point. Um, when she was born in 74, her father was 44 and her mother was 39. Which, thinking about it in 74, that was extremely odd. Today, it's mm-hmm. not so odd. I'm 35. I don't have kids. I would be okay even having a kid at 40 mm-hmm. in today's age. So, but at that time, it was very weird. Yeah. And her mother, Bonnie Faye, said that Crystal was her miracle. Um, she was definitely the lot of Bonnie's eye. When Crystal was 11, her father passed away. So, she and Bonnie became extremely close. Mm-hmm. Um, and they relied heavily on each other. Crystal was a bright and bubbly and helpful child. She loved people and she loved animals and she loved taking care of them. 
Um, she had two cats, Church and Snuggles, which Church is the name of the cat from Pet Cemetery. Oh, I totally forgot that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she had Church and Snuggles, mm -hmm. and when she was younger, she would diaper the cats and push them around in a stroller. <laughs> Something I'm pretty sure the one hours here at the house would never let us do. Oh no, I would lose a finger. <laughs> Although Winnie is okay with bathroom stuff. She's jumped in the toilet twice. <laughs> um, so as Crystal got older, she helped her mother out at home and she could often be found making one of her favorite breakfasts in the morning, which was grits, eggs, sausage, and coffee. Nice. Which I'm totally on board with some eggs and sausage. I don't like grits, mm -hmm. but give me the rest of that and I'll eat it. <laughs> Uh, Crystal took on a lot of responsibility as a teenager. She did the majority of the cooking and cleaning at home. Mm -hmm. She loved having a clean house, which, same girl. <laughs> and she would do so frequently. Her mother, Bonnie, was a smoker, which Crystal detested. Mm -hmm. And she would get extremely angry if Bonnie smoked in the house. She did a lot of the grocery shopping. She mowed the grass. Her grandmother and her uncle didn't live too far away from... Um, Bonnie and Crystal, and when they both became sick, Crystal readily agreed and was willing to drive them to their doctor's visits. Bonnie worked an overnight shift at a local manufacturing plant and allowed Crystal to stay home overnight alone. Mm -hmm. Well, I say allowed her to. Initially, she was very against this idea, but Crystal insisted, and then Bonnie gave in. Crystal was a pretty responsible teenager, you know, for as responsible as a teenager could be. Um, up until this point, there wasn't a phone in the house. So, Bonnie and Crystal would walk over to Crystal's grandmother's house to use the phone. Um, but when Bonnie started working the overnight shift, she wanted to be able to call and check in on Crystal mm -hmm. when she was working. So, also at this point, Crystal was a teenager. And she was wanting more privacy during her phone conversations. Because, you know, it's not that fun to have a conversation with your friends about the boy you think is cute with your grandmother sitting there. No, absolutely not. Um, so, Bonnie actually got a phone installed in their house. And it wasn't just in their house. The phone was installed in Crystal's room. And when Bonnie picked out the phone, she got a princess phone because Crystal was her princess. Aww. They were super cute. Like, uh-huh. Life had dealt them a pretty tough blow when Junior died, and Bonnie and Crystal, like, they became best friends. Mm -hmm. So, towards the end of 1991, Crystal was 17, and she was in her senior year at Conway High School. And she was your typical teenager. She loved makeup, and she loved jewelry, and she loved shopping and clothes. Um, the photo that's most commonly found when you type in Crystal's name in a Google search uh -huh. is, like, the classic... 90s photo like she's got the teased hair with lots of hairspray <laughs> she reminds me of my aunt who is around the same age as mm -hmm. crystal would have been and i remember because in 91 i was five or six uh-huh um, as was i <laughs> and i remember like idolizing my aunt like mm -hmm. i thought she was so cool because she was again around crystal's age i was like god i want to be just like her when i grow up side note i don't want to be just like her now that i'm grown up <laughs> but when i was five I really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Crystal was a tiny teenager. She was only 5'3". She weighed about 110 pounds. And she had these bright blue eyes. In an interview that I saw with Bonnie on the ID show, Stolen Voices, Buried Secrets, she said that she had never seen a sky as blue as Crystal's eyes. 
And Crystal was, like, a popular student at Conway High School. She spent her weekends with her best friend, Carla. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went to the mall, or at least cruised the mall parking lot because there's not a lot to do in Conway. <laughs> um, they went to the beach in the summer, football games in the fall. And then, like all teenagers, they went to a lot of parties. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's, I mean... Conway was and still is a small southern town where football, party, shopping, and hunting are the most common pastimes of teens. Sorry for the sound. Winnie has just knocked something over. <laughs> okay. Um, so, as an early graduation gift, Bonnie had purchased a brand new 1991 metallic blue Toyota Celica for Crystal. And Crystal was so damn proud of her car. Yes. It was like another level of freedom. She had a personalized tag that read C. Todd. And on her key ring, she had tiny wooden teddy bears. (laughs) She kept her car sparkling clean, would not let anybody else drive it. When Bonnie rode in her car and she smoked, the first thing Crystal did when she got home was clean and air out that car. Mm -hmm. Like, it was her prized possession. When Crystal... Got in trouble for drinking and driving. She was extremely upset. Bonnie was extremely disappointed. She actually lost her license because she was in a DUI accident. She had been drinking and driving and hit a telephone pole. Oh, no. Yeah, and this was maybe in, like, beginning of senior year. Mm Mm-hmm. So, police had offered not to charge her with a DUI if she would become an informant for them. But Crystal was like, nah, dude, ain't happening. (laughs) And she decided that she was just going to take her punishment because she didn't want to rat out her friends. Mm-hmm. And again, like, she's a teenager. She was doing something that teenagers are not legally allowed to do. But she wasn't doing anything that was everybody else wasn't doing. Exactly. She was doing things that teenagers do. Yes. So she decided to take her punishment and she lost her license for three months. Because um, actually the charges got l- lowered. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't actually charged with, like, a... Well, I guess full DUI charge. Uh huh. Um, on Saturday, November sixteenth, nineteen ninety one, which was about thirty one years ago this past week. Oh. Yes. Goodness, and that's ninety one. Yep, I know. World. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal had just gotten her license back, and Bonnie had just given her her driving privileges back. So early that afternoon, Crystal had accompanied her mother to an early dinner to celebrate her grandmother's birthday. The dinner was over over by 7. Well, at least Crystal was done with dinner by 7 because, you know, as a teenager, as much as you love your family, it's not cool to be hanging out with your grandma on Saturday night. No. So she headed back into town to see what was happening. And as is common in most small towns, um, and before cell phones were a thing, Mm -hmm. um, generally... A common meeting place for teens is, like, the mall. Yeah. Or an empty parking lot if you're in a small town in the south. hmm And so you just go there, and you drive around, you see who's there. And then you drive around together. <laughs> you, yeah, and then you drive around together. And that's how you, like, find out what's happening. hmm So Crystal ended up in the mall parking lot where Carla worked part-time at Belk. And when Carla got off at 930, she walked outside to see Crystal parked beside her car. Crystal asked Carla if she wanted to go to a party at a friend's pond house, and Carla agreed. On the way there, they talked about this boy that Crystal really liked and had spent some time with. However, he was kind of a dick to her, and Carla did not approve. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Carla had told Crystal, like, you should just stay away from him because he doesn't really treat you nicely. Like, mm-hmm. he pretends sometimes like he doesn't even know you. And Crystal agreed and said she wasn't going to talk to him if, if he was there. But Carla was like, she's probably going to talk to him if he's there. <laughs> so when they got there, they found out that this boy was there. But he had brought another girl. Uh-oh. Yeah, and Carla mm-hmm. noticed, like, Crystal was pretty upset over it. Mm-hmm. And so when Crystal told Carla around 11 p.m. that she was ready to go whenever Carla was, Carla said she was ready. Mm-hmm. And anyway, Carla had a little 11.15 curfew. And she's going to be pushing it close. Like, she's probably going to end up late because they're leaving this party at 11. Uh-huh. They didn't get back to Carla's car until right at 11.15. And as she was getting out of Crystal's car, she turned around and told Crystal, like, you know, be careful. Crystal told her she wasn't going to go home right away because she had just gotten her car back. And her curfew was not until 12.30. Mm-hmm. And at this point, she still got a little over an hour. Yeah. So, she told Carla she was just going to go get something to eat or drive around. Um, and Carla could see that Crystal was still kind of upset about the boy at the party. So, she again, she just told her to be careful. And Crystal told her, like, of course. And then she drove off. Mm-hmm. So, after Crystal failed to meet her 1230 curfew, at like 1 o'clock, Bonnie began calling her friends. Mm-hmm. Um, because she knew that wasn't like... Crystal. Yeah. Like, if Crystal is going to be late, Crystal called. Mm-hmm. And especially because she just got her license back, she is not pushing it and trying to get in any more trouble. Mm-hmm. If she's going to be late, she's going to call her mom. So she reached out to Carla, and Carla told her that the last time she'd seen Crystal was about 11.15 in the mall parking lot. And then she called Ken Register around 1.15. Ken Register was one of Crystal's close friends, too, and asked if he'd seen Crystal. Ken said he had just gotten home, but he hadn't seen Crystal that evening at all. He actually ended up calling local hospitals just to make sure Crystal wasn't there. And she wasn't. By 3.30 a.m., Bonnie was panicking. And she, like, when she found out Crystal wasn't in the hospital, she called her boyfriend. And they went and were driving around every place in Conway that they thought Crystal could be, and they couldn't find her. So at 3.30, she picked up the phone and she made a frantic call to Horry County 911. Now, the, the Horry County dispatcher that was on call that night was Mike Hill. Mm-hmm. And when he got the call, Bonnie was so frantic on the phone, he wasn't actually sure what was happening. So, when she calmed down enough for, like, to speak clearly, he realized that he knew her because Conway's tiny. Yes. And he'd actually been Crystal's piano teacher when she was a child. He was not extremely concerned uh-huh. That Crystal was only a few hours past curfew because she had just gotten her license back. She mm-hmm. probably lost track of time. She probably fallen asleep somewhere. And he assured Bonnie that she, you know, she she would be back. And he told Bonnie to call back when Crystal came home. Like, he was completely unconcerned. This was not the first time he'd gotten a call from a parent because their teenager was late. Uh-huh. And then they come home and everything, like, they're safe. Mm-hmm. Bonnie had told him, like, I've called her friends. Nobody can see, like, knows where she's at. We've drove around. We don't know where she's at. Um, but, again, he, like, he tried to calm her down, said call back whenever Crystal comes home. And even though Bonnie didn't feel super great when she got off the phone, she did get off the phone. hmm And by 8 a.m., when Crystal still had not come home, Bonnie called back and was begging and pleading for someone to help her. She was adamant that something had happened to Crystal and that Crystal just would not have stayed out without letting her know what what, what was going on. Because that was not Crystal, and she didn't want her mom to worry. Mm-hmm. 
So around 8.45 that morning, Officer Wade Petty arrived at Bonnie's house. Bonnie was completely distraught, obviously. Her child had not come home. And she told Officer Petty that she had called all of Crystal's girlfriends. Nobody knew where they were, where she was. And some of her girlfriends had actually gone out with Bonnie early that morning to look for Crystal. And they found Crystal's car parked at Conway Middle School. And she had left her purse and money inside. Crystal and her keys were missing, but everything else was there. Which mm. was extremely concerning. Yes, they never good. Yeah, because first of all, Crystal would have told somebody where she was going. Mm-hmm. And she loved that damn car. She would not have left yeah. it. Like, she would have taken her car. Mm-hmm. So Bonnie gave Officer Petty a description of Crystal and said that the last thing she'd seen Crystal wearing was some blue dungarees, a printed top, she was wearing a brown leather jacket, and she had on brown shoes and white socks. And Bonnie was just convinced that something terrible had happened. She said she just, like, had this feeling something is wrong with Crystal. Mm, sadly, intuition is right. Yeah. Um, and so as Bonnie and Officer Petty were outside talking, Ken Register pulled up. He got out of the car. Bonnie told um, Officer Petty, like, that's Ken. He's one of Crystal's closest friends. They've grown up together. He was actually one of their neighbors. Um, he was about a year older than Crystal, and he'd graduated the year before. Mm-hmm. But Ken Register's family and Crystal's family were family friends, so they were frequent visitors at the Todd household all the time. Mm-hmm. Ken was 18. And he was also very liked, very well liked by his peers. He played football while he was in high school, and he was active in his church, often taking care of the music for the congregation by playing guitar. Um, most of the locals considered Ken to be kind, thoughtful, like all-American, blonde hair, blue eyes, built. Um, and he gets out, and he spoke with Officer Petty, and he told Officer Petty, like, yes, I spoke with Bonnie the night before. She had called me. And then I called hospitals to see if Crystal was there. He said, I hadn't seen Crystal. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, Bonnie had actually asked Ken that night if he would come help her search. But his mom had asked him not to go because he was sick. Um, and now, in South Carolina, you know, it stays hot, like, a very long time. Yes. And even this, though this was November, it had been in like the 70s on that Saturday. So, mm-hmm. Ken had gone out on his boat, I think. Um, he was with his friends that day. And he'd actually gotten a sunburn. Mm-hmm. And so, at night when he was out, he had the sunburn. It got colder. He had caught a cold in those few hours <laughs> because he had the sunburn. And, uh-huh. you know, the temperature dropped so drastically. And so, his mom was like, don't go. Mm-hmm. And anyway, Bonnie's boyfriend was going to go with her. So, it was cool. Um, Ken told Officer Petty that he and Crystal really didn't hang out a lot else, like, anymore, just because he graduated the year prior, and he wasn't exactly sure, like, you know, he wasn't in that partying stage anymore. He Mm -hmm. was actually dating somebody who was not a partier, Uh didn't like him to party, and Crystal still went out a lot and partied, and so they didn't, they didn't hang out with the same circles. He did let Officer Petty know, like, he had heard of a couple parties going on the night before, and suggested that Crystal might be one of might have been at one of them. Um, but it was Sunday morning, so Ken told Bonnie, like, I'm going to go to church, and then I'll come back and help you search for Crystal. Mm-hmm. He had actually spent the morning prior mm-hmm. before meeting his friends helping to build a church, like, finish 
put the finishing touches on a new church that he and his father had helped build for the congregation. Oh, wow. So he had to be at the service this morning. Mm-hmm. Okay. So around 9.10 a.m., Horry County 911 received another call. And this time, it was from a young hunter. He informed dispatch that he'd found a body in a ditch off of Collins Jolly Road. That morning, he and his brother had gone out deer hunting. And when they turned on to Collins Jolly Road, they slowed down when they noticed a large pool of blood. And what appeared to be drag marks on the side of the road. Now, initially, they thought that someone had shot a deer and that had just ran off. But when they got out to investigate, they realized, like, this is a lot of blood. Mm -hmm. And it did not come from a deer. So they followed the drag marks to the edge of the road. And they noticed a shoe sticking out of the ditch. And when they got a little bit closer, they realized that the shoe was still attached to an ankle. The... Scene when they looked was absolutely horrifying and upsetting to the point where one of the hunters actually threw up. So officers arrived at the home of, because they, the hunters, you know, again, cell phones weren't a thing. Mm-hmm. So they hauled ass back to their house and called police to tell them they had found the body. And then officers got there at their home around 10 a.m. And only one of the hunters would go back. The other hid in a bedroom and refused to go back. He said it was the worst thing he had ever seen. Oh, goodness. And I bet he had some PTSD from that. <clears throat> oh, I'm sure he did. I am sure he did. Um, Officer Petty was actually one of the first officers on the scene. And he quickly contacted Detective Bill Knowles. Bill Knowles was considered, like, a better-than-good detective and was one of only three officers in his department that had completed the FBI Training Academy in Quantico. Mm-hmm. Now, although Detective Knowles had investigated over 100 homicides in his career, this one shook him to his core. And I'm going to give a trigger warning here because I'm about to discuss some really graphic stuff. Okay. Okay. The body he discovered had been brutalized and mutilated. He could see that it was the body of a young woman. And it was determined by officers that her body had been dragged across the road and thrown down the ravine. The position of her body and the location of the bloodstain was indicative that she'd been attacked in one location, like on one side of the road. Mm -hmm. And then her body dragged across the road and thrown down the other side. Her jeans were unzipped and were pulled down around her hips as if she was, like, dressing in a hurry but didn't have time to fully redress. Mm-hmm. Her shirt had been torn open. The buttons were completely ripped off. And her bra was pulled up so that her breasts were exposed. Her face had been smeared with blood. Mm. And Detective Knowles saw that her throat had been slashed open. Ooh, goodness. He noticed that... She appeared to have multiple stab wounds and multiple slash wounds in her abdomen. The young woman had actually been disemboweled and thrown into the ditch. Later, her autopsy would reveal, like, the true extent of her injuries. When the medical examiner performed her autopsy, he discovered that the young woman had 35 separate stab wounds and cuts. He noted seven separate bruises and three different abrasions on her body. 
she had bruises and cuts on her face, mm-hmm. and he determined that her throat had been slashed three separate <gasps> times. Good lord. And it was from ear to ear. Ooh. She had almost been decapitated because the wounds had severed all of the tissues in her neck and her windpipe. Um, If it had not been for her spinal column and the bones in her neck remaining somewhat intact during the attack, she would have been decapitated. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. One of the stab wounds in her chest had hit a lung. And another one that was under her breastbone was so deep that it had ruptured her liver. There were stab wounds in her skull that had been delivered with such force that they penetrated her brain. Mm. Um, And they noticed that she had defensive wounds Mm -hmm. on her right hand. And like it was, yeah, she had defensive wounds on one side of her body. But the stab wounds to her head were mm-hmm. on the opposite side. So the stab wounds were on the left side. She had defensive wounds on her right hand. Um, and that is because, you know, your left side of the brain controls the right side of your body. And the right side controls your left side. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was indicative that she was alive for much of the attack. And oh, even God. though she had basically been paralyzed, she was still fighting because she knew she was in danger. Ooh. Yes. Um, two of the stab wounds had opened her abdominal wall, which allowed for her to become disemboweled. Mm. And it was also discovered that this young girl had been brutally raped. And this is another trigger warning, um, both vaginally and anally. The medical examiner discovered sperm in both her vagina and anus, and it was brutal there were several abrasions around her vagina and anus it was an extreme case of overkill and a lot of the wounds had been made made after she died Mm -hmm. because there was no blood coming out so officers at the scene collected several pieces of evidence from the victim including dna evidence one of the pieces of jewelry they collected from her body was a class ring and it was inscribed with the name Crystal Faye Todd. Detective Knowles accompanied two other officers to Bonnie's house to let them know that Crystal had been found. And when they arrived at her home, um, Bonnie met them at the door. Like She already knew mm-hmm. that Crystal was dead. Um, but she waited until she got them in the house before she completely broke down. And it was absolutely excruciating. For officers to watch her break down. Mm-hmm. I mean, she cried for several minutes. I'm sure. Um, before she was able to speak. And then when she was, she just talked about how wonderful her daughter was. Mm-hmm. She told officers that Crystal was her life. And that if Crystal wasn't living anymore, she didn't want to be either. Detective Knowles asked Bonnie if Crystal had anyone that might want to hurt her. And Bonnie was clueless as to who could want to hurt her daughter. She told investigators that on the evening of Crystal's murder, they'd gone to that birthday dinner, and then Crystal had gone out with her friends. She allowed investigators to search Crystal's bedroom, Mm -hmm. um, and they collected anything that could be of help in finding who killed her. They took some of her notebooks and her diary. Now, at Crystal's funeral, there was over 1,500 attendees. Wow, that's a lot of people. Yep. 
Crystal had been really close with her cousin, Kevin. She was actually supposed to go out with Kevin that night that she was murdered. Mm-hmm. But he had, he had gone out with other friends and had failed to call her. And after Crystal's death, he felt extremely guilty because he never called her. Oh, I mean, I would feel the same way, but it's... Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he's in the episode of Forensic Files, and, like, you can tell he is mm-hmm. still heartbroken, which obviously he would be. Um, so Kevin and Ken were both pallbearers in Crystal's funeral. And Ken was really upset. Like, he, he looked like the blood had been drained from his body. He actually got sick. At Bonnie's house after the funeral and was throwing up in the bushes. Mm-hmm. Um, Crystal's funeral was open casket. And the mortician had actually done a wonderful job at hiding, like, the brutality that Crystal had endured. Many of her classmates, because, you know, Horry County's not huge, Conway's super tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of rumors had been circulating about what had happened to Crystal. And so they were shocked to see, like, how peaceful she actually looked. Um, some of the rumors that had been swirling around was that Crystal had been murdered by a satanic cult. Crystal was killed in 91 mm-hmm. at the height of the satanic panic. Uh-huh. Um, however, investigators quickly dispelled that rumor and assured the town of Conway that there was no evidence to suggest that Crystal had been murdered by a satanic cult. Police began interviewing Crystal's friends and family to get a better understanding of what had happened to her leading to her murder. And... You know, they heard, you know, there was some rumors like Crystal liked to party. But again, Mm -hmm. every teenager does. Yeah. And wanting to party is not a reason for someone to be brutally murdered. No, absolutely (laughs) not. And honestly, like you said, as teenagers, it's nothing out of the ordinary to hear that they like to party. No. Um, Friends and family shared that there was like no doubt in their mind. There was absolutely no way in hell Crystal would have gotten in the car with somebody unless she knew them. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... So, detectives working the case spoke with some of her classmates. They all stated that Crystal was well-liked. When they spoke to Carla, she told them about the party they'd been to. Um, and Crystal, and, and after speaking to Carla, they kind of had a pretty good timeline of Crystal's whereabouts until she was murdered at 11.15. Carla did tell them about a boy that Crystal had dated previously, not the boy at the party, mm-hmm. um, but it was a, a different boy, and he was known to get violent. But when police questioned him, he was he was clear that was not that kid. Um, because of the brutality of Crystal's murder and just like how terrible it was, they brought in the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division or SLED mm-hmm. to help with the investigation. And they'd actually gotten a decent enough amount of DNA at the crime scene from her body. To be able to get, like, a really good sample, or they got a really good sample so they could get a um, profile. Okay. And it was actually really great that they were able to do that because the donor of that DNA had a blood type of O, which is extremely common. hmm But they had a very rare blood subtype, um, which is known as a PGM blood subtype, and that is extremely, extremely rare. So rare, in fact, that only one in 250 million Caucasian men could be a match, and one in 1.5 billion African American men could be a match. So, if they found a match to that DNA, that's who it was. Mm-hmm. I don't even know, 
blood subtypes. I barely know the blood types, but... Me either. Yeah, I have no idea. And it's mm-hmm. extremely rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so investigators were asking Crystal's, like, men in the community, Crystal's classmates, if they would give a DNA sample, and all willingly agreed. Now, granted, at the time, DNA was still really new, and very few people actually knew what it was and knew mm-hmm. its significance. And a lot of the shows, like Forensic Files, um, made comment about the guys not thinking that it was like going against their civil liberties because you know a lot of times like they're like you know you why do you need my dna mm-hmm. and, but that because it was so new i mean dna had, evidence had never been used in a court in south carolina until this point mm-hmm. so fingerprint analysis had been like the focal point of most investigations um and with sled they also called um in a criminal profile profiler Mm -hmm. Um, Agent David Caldwell. And he provided a profile of the man they believed that would be responsible for Crystal's murder. His profile listed a lot of key points. um, But some of them were like really, really close. Um, He said that Crystal's murderer would be a white male, ages 20 to 25. Mm -hmm. He had a prior criminal record. It was someone close to Crystal who would not likely be a suspect. And after Crystal's murder, he most likely retreated to a safe haven, which would either be his home or the home of a relative. Mm -hmm. So he would not have gone out to try to, like, make an alibi for himself. Okay. And also, after Crystal's murder, he would have been completely covered in blood. So where else would he have gone? Mm Mm-hmm. So going through Crystal's notebook, they found the name Andy Tyndall written. And when they looked deeper into Andy, they discovered that he was a wanted fugitive from Alabama. Oh. Um, he was facing charges that were nonviolent. Mm-hmm. But when they looked deeper, they found out that he was a fucking pervert, have had a predilection for young girls. Ooh. And that he'd been accused of rape. Now, Andy was 31 at the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they found out that. Andy and Crystal had actually met through a friend. Now, if you watch the Forensic Files episode and the Stolen Voices Buried Secrets episode, it made it sound like Crystal and Andy had had a relationship Mm -hmm. or more interaction than they had. In the book, An Hour to Kill, the book by Dale Hudson and Bill Hill, it sounded like Crystal had actually been introduced to Andy by a friend Mm -hmm. who herself was interested in Andy. Um, but Andy got really pushy and her friend was like, uh, I'm not into that. No, thank you. Uh huh. Um, so it sounded like Crystal in this book had only met him one time and she had told her friend, oh, I think he's cute. But like that, it made it sound like they had only met one time in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so detectives wanted to speak to Andy because he had at least met Crystal one time and she had his name doodled in her notebook, which what teenage girl has not doodled the name of your crush in your notebook (laughs) you know sam loves filling the blank changed every week actually a lot of the times it was david boreanis (laughs) a lot of the times it was and if i had known how to write when i had my first crush which was david hasselhoff (laughs) at like five it would have been sam plus david hasselhoff equals love forever oh goodness and did you play the smash or was it mash or smash game i never understood it yes oh god we played that so many times so you could have like any number of people's names written in just to see the outcome not even like really be interested in them 
Oh, yeah. And I we full-on believed it. When me and my friends played mm-hmm. that, you better believe I thought <laughs> I was going to marry David Boreanaz. <laughs> it has not happened, but shout out, David, if you're listening, hit me up. <laughs> so, anyway, um, when investigators tracked Andy down... He literally took off running on foot into the woods. Oh, that is never a good sign. <laughs> no. And investigators spent several hours tracking him through the night. They even called in damn bloodhounds to find him. Good grief, he must have, like, ran fast. Well, I mean, he was running. He was a wanted fugitive. Mm-hmm. So in the morning hours, the day after he took off running, he turned himself in because in his, wor- his words, he was tired of running. <laughs> I mean, he it, he was probably running all night long, so I bet he was tired. Probably so. When police questioned him about Crystal, he admitted, like, yeah, I'd met her once, but I didn't kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, and he readily agreed to give a DNA sample, and he was, after they got the results back, he was definitively, definitively ruled out as Crystal's murderer. Now, Bonnie was a freaking bulldog which she should have been she stayed on top of investigators she was calling them all the damn time wanting Mm -hmm. to get updates and during one conversation with detective Knowles, detective Knowles asked her again if she could think of anybody that would hurt crystal and she said no um and he asked her like is there anybody that you would like trust crystal with implicitly like who would you think that you could leave her with and she would be completely fine Mm mm-hmm and she's like, can register. Like, he's our best friend. Um, and then looking through his notes, he realized, like, he actually, like, can register had not actually been formally questioned. <clears throat> and they'd not collected a DNA sample from mm-hmm. Ken. So when he mentioned this to Bonnie, she kind of laughed. And she's like, Ken would never hurt Crystal. And he was one of her best friends. And you're basically wasting your time. Thank you. Goodbye. Go find the murderer of my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Detective Knowles was like, well, we need to still speak to him. Like, he knew her very well. (laughs) So, in early January, Ken was called to come in for a formal interview and give a DNA sample. And when investigators called him, he's like, what's DNA? (laughs) Because, again, this is 91. Like, we say that now. We're both like, what a stupid idiot. (laughs) But, like, in 91, that was not a thing. Mm -hmm. Now, if they had been like, hey, Ken, come in and get your fingerprints. He'd have been like, oh, I know what, exactly. what that is. Um, but he didn't know what DNA was. And they explained it to him a little bit. Um, the interview was actually scheduled out for like a few days out from that phone call. So that evening he went to Bonnie Bonnie's house. Mm-hmm. And that's not unusual. Like he had been vi- visiting Bonnie a lot since Crystal's murder. Like even more so than he had before Crystal passed away. And he would like check on Bonnie, make sure she was okay, and just like get updates on the investigation. But that evening, he appeared, like, nervous. And he told Bonnie that he had to go in for an interview and that he was worried that investigators were getting desperate to find the person person that had murdered Crystal. And he said he had a feeling they were going to try to pin it on somebody just to, you know, make people feel better that they got him. Mm-hmm. They got somebody. So, Bonnie was like, no, like, that's not going to happen. Um, and he told Bonnie that he'd heard that you could fool the DNA test. Like, he kept saying that you could, like, trick, like, trick the, them and get, like, you could pass it, you know. And she's like, um, 
And he's like, yeah, you can do that by taking somebody else's blood and then you just give them that sample. <laughs> now, again, this is 91. Clearly, he did not know how blood samples were collected. No, it, it's not. That's not how it works. It's not as easy as a urine test used to be where you could walk no. in and come out with someone else's urine. Yeah, yeah, but you ain't putting somebody else's pee in a little cup and hiding no. that in your bag and taking it in. You ain't getting tested for drugs, sir. No. So Bonnie told him he's being ridiculous. It's not going to happen. She's like, Ken, you didn't kill Crystal. You have nothing to be worried about. However, his odd behavior must have sparked something in Bonnie because she did call Detective Knowles and, like, let him know, like, hey, Ken was here. He seemed nervous. He's afraid you guys are going to try to pin it on him. So detectives knew this, like, when Ken went in for his formal interview. Mm -hmm. And when he went in, he was asked about his relationship with Crystal. And Crystal and Ken had actually dated for a while in 1998 when they were both young teenagers, but they'd broken up and remained friends. Um, Wait, in 88? 88, yes. Okay, it was like she died in 91, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, they, maybe like 14. <laughs> mm-hmm. And don't actually date somebody when you're 14. Yeah, I was going to say, like, teenager dating, like, it's especially like high school, middle school type, does not real dates. No, no. Um, he'd, he was asked if he'd ever had sex with Crystal, and he said no. Um, when they asked about the last time he'd seen or spoken to Crystal, he said he'd actually spoken to her like three or four days prior to her murder because she'd called to ask him if he could take her to get her driver's license renewed, but he wasn't able to do so, so he did it. And he said that was the last time he talked to her. Mm-hmm. Ken told detectives that on the night of Crystal's murder, he'd been at the racetrack in Aner, South Carolina with his girlfriend and that he'd left around 11.30, got home by 12.30, where his mom was waiting up for him. He said he didn't get to see his mom a lot throughout the week. So on the weekends, his mom would sit up. And then that was like their time. When he got home, they would just hang out and talk. Mm-hmm. When detectives later spoke with his girlfriend, who was either 14 or 15 at the time, which maybe in 91 that wasn't a big deal. But like for me, that just feels gross because he was 18 and he was dating someone that was like 14 or 15. Yeah, that's... Which I think that's kind of nasty. Yeah. Yeah, a lot nasty. Um, mm-hmm. So when they spoke with his girlfriend and with his mom, Shirley, they both corroborated his statements. Tammy, I don't know her actual name. The book calls her Tammy. She said, yeah, he left around 1130-ish, somewhere around that time. Like I said, he... So he was ready to go like... Pretty soon. Again, it had gotten cooler at the racetrack. He mm-hmm. had a sunburn. His ass was ready to go. <laughs> um, but Tammy did not want to leave because Tammy had a curfew. But her family worked at the racetrack. So if she stayed at the racetrack, she was able to stay out later. Mm-hmm. But if she left with Ken, she had to go home. And she was not ready to go home. So she stayed at the racetrack and Ken left. Mm-hmm. And his mom said, yeah, he got home around twelve fifteen. So... Like, during this interview, Ken was asked about his odd behavior at Bonnie's house and, like, asked, like, how he thought he could trick the test. (laughs) And he admitted, like, yeah, I told her I thought I could beat it. And he said he thought he could beat it by bringing in the blood sample of someone else. Mm -hmm. To which detectives quickly schooled him on how it works. (laughs) Like, you, when you give a blood sample, you are escorted by the police and they stand there and they watch you as your blood is taken. Mm-hmm. So when they ask if he would agree to that, he initially asked if he could speak to his mama first. Mm-hmm. And then he asked, what has everybody else done? And police were like, everybody that we've asked has willingly given us a 
sample. Yes. And they're like, yeah, you can speak to your mom or your lawyer. You can speak to whoever you want to. But nobody else has to speak to their mom or their lawyer. They just gave their sample. Mm-hmm. So then Kim was like, okay, I'll give a sample. So this was in January of 92. On February 15th, 1992, Detective Knowles got the call that he had been waiting for. And they finally had a match on DNA and they would be able to make a rest. So the, when the DNA analyst calls to tell him, she's like, yeah, we've got the sample. And like, he has this rare, um, PGM blood subtype. And she said the, she's like, who is sample 44? I think it was 44. Mm -hmm. And he was like, that is Ken Register. Oh no. And, like, the criminal profiler, like, his, a lot of his key points fit Ken. They did. Ken did not think that he would be suspected, which Mm -hmm. is, like, one of the points. Super close with Crystal's Mm -hmm. family. He said he went home right after. Um, and so when preparing to arrest Ken, detectives decided to take a three-pronged approach that would all happen simultaneously on the day of his arrest. So, one group of officers would be sent to inform both Bonnie and Ken's parents that Ken's being arrested. One group would be sent to search the register home. And then another would be sent to arrest Ken. Mm-hmm. So, February 18th, 1992 was the day that Ken Register would be arrested. On the day Bonnie found out Ken was being arrested, she was in a state of disbelief and shock. But she quickly started seeing his behavior and his frequent visits to her house as much more sinister Mm -hmm. rather than caring and comforting. I mean, Ken was coming to Bonnie's house, hugging her, holding her, telling her it was going to be okay. And all this time, he's the person that brutally raped and murdered her only child. Mm -hmm. It was... That is rough. Yeah, it is very scary. (laughs) Um, Shirley Register was also in a state of disbelief and complete denial that Ken was the murderer. She said, I saw him Mm -hmm. and he, like I was, I was waiting for him. I saw him when he came home. And she is also one of those people that kind of, maybe not a punchable face, but a punchable attitude. Oh. Yeah, I, I I don't think that she presented herself well. No, again, that is her child. However, however, if your child did something completely terrible, like brutally rape and murder and Mm -hmm. disembowel one of his closest friends, don't stick up for him, okay? Yeah, you don't need to. You don't get to have an attitude. How about that? Like, you can have one, but you don't. You You can feel bad. You can be upset that your child did something completely terrible. Mm Mm-hmm. But... Don't get an attitude, ma'am. No. Don't get an attitude. Um, in a later interview that I watched on Forensic Files, Bonnie said that if Shirley had truly seen Ken come home that night, she would have seen him covered in Crystal's blood. And if she helped him cover it up, then she would have Crystal's blood on her hands too, both mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. So the team... That was sent to search the register home. Was met at the door by Ken's father. And he was adamant they were not coming in his house. Uh, he was actually quite forceful about it. 
Um, but investigators had a search warrant, and it really didn't matter if he wanted them to search or not because they had a search warrant, and they could go in his house and search it if they wanted to. Exactly. And they did. Good. Um, he was asked to point investigators to Ken's room or where Ken kept most of his things. And when they went in, they found newspaper clippings detailing Crystal's murder. Um, they actually just did a subsequent search after Ken's arrest where they found an empty knife case that was the same kind of knife mm-hmm. or would have held the same kind of knife as the knife that the medical examiner believed to be the one that killed Crystal and the knife was missing. So Ken Register was arrested while at work at Santee Cooper. Um, upon his arrest, Ken immediately began, pro- began protesting that he had nothing to do with Crystal's murder. Like even before... They arrested him. He was like, I didn't have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Which okay. seems awful guilty. Yeah, that's weird. Um, he was read his Miranda rights and placed in the police car. He just kept protesting his innocence and then repeatedly stating that he wanted his mama. Not, I need a lawyer. <laughs> he said, I want my mama. Uh-huh. And he said that numerous times. Wow. You want to stop? Yep. Yeah, I was giving it enough time. Once he arrived at the police station, Ken was led into an interrogation room where Detective Knowles and then Agents Streeter and Agent Caldwell were waiting. Detective Knowles immediately let Ken know that they knew he had killed Crystal. And Ken began to object, but Detective Knowles reiterated, like, we know you're guilty and we'd like you to come leave. He asked Ken if they could record their interview, but Ken said no. Now, legally, Detective Knowles could have recorded it without Ken's consent, mm-hmm. but he was following FBI protocol and opting not to do so, which can be very helpful during trial because if it comes to the case of a defendant against investigators and the evidence presented by investigators matches what occurred in the interrogation, like jurors are most likely going to believe investigators over the defendant. Uh huh. So investigators told Ken... That they had his footprints, footprints, well, that was super country, his prints, <laughs> um, his footprints and tire tracks at the scene, as well as an eyewitness that had seen Crystal and him driving together the night she was murdered shor- shortly before her death would occur. Now, those were laws, mm-hmm. uh, but investigators are legally allowed to lie, uh-huh. so they weren't doing anything wrong. Ken repeatedly asked for his mother, but never a lawyer, but again, asked for his mama a bunch. And so, he was adamantly denying that he had been involved in Crystal's murder. Um, Detective Knowles was like, you know, we, we saw you. We know that you were here. Mm-hmm. And so, then Kim began giving, like, little pieces. They were like, well, where did you go? And he said he went straight home. And they were like, no, we're sure that you went this way. We mm-hmm. know that you were in Conway. They didn't know he was in Conway. Yeah. They didn't have anybody saying that he was in Conway. But Ken was like, okay, yeah, maybe I did drive that way. And they were like, well, what did you do when you are there? Well, I may have, like, drove around the mall parking lot. And they were like, well, we saw somebody that saw you with Crystal. And he's like, no, I think I saw some friends. And I waved at, waved at them and they waved back. And so that's how they saw me there. That didn't happen. Like, No. Police didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And they were like, so we have somebody that saw you there that can corroborate that you were just there driving around the mall parking lot. And Ken's like, well, I waved at them, but I don't know if they waved at me. Mm-hmm. So he's like giving like little 
bits like that where it's like, mm, you know something, you're just not telling us what you know. Yeah. Like, you have placed yourself at... Yeah. At probably so, the scene of the abduction. After a few hours of Ken denying being involved in Crystal's murder, Detective Knowles tried another tactic. Because he felt that Ken was on the verge of confessing, but... He wasn't, like, there yet. Mm-hmm. And he'd been asking for his mama, like, a ridiculous amount of times. And investigators were like, oh, my God, shut up, Ken. <laughs> uh, they didn't say that, but I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Yeah. But there were no way investigators were going to allow Shirley Register to visit with her son during the current investigation. But they told Ken, we'll go speak with your mama. Mm-hmm. Okay? So detectives were hoping to get some support from the registers. Uh, which did not happen. I'm um, not surprised. No. The registers immediately asked if they could go see him. And investigators were like, no. Investigators were like, no. But you can write a letter to him. Mm-hmm. And they asked Shirley if she could write a letter to Ken just telling him to like be truthful. Please just tell the truth. Yeah. And Shirley was like, yeah, I'll write a letter. But I'm going to write what I want to write. <laughs> of course she would. So, okay, I have to mention this. In the Forensic Files episode, which, again, I said at the beginning of the episode, they took some artistic liberties. Mm -hmm. In the letter that they show from Shirley, it said something like, keep your mouth shut until you speak with a lawyer. That's not what Shirley's letter said. Oh, okay. No, that is not what Shirley's letter said. Shirley's letter said, Ken, I love you. I know where you were at. We know when you left the racetrack, and I know when you got home. I'll stand by you. I love you, Mama. Mm-hmm. And so, police, when they read that, they were like, okay, like, she's going to stick by this kid no matter what. Mm-hmm. She may or may not know what had happened. They don't know. But either way, she's going to be his alibi if he needs one. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not saying that Shirley knows what happened. I don't know what happened. This was just kind of like the train of thought that investigators were going down. So, although Ken stated that he had left the racetrack around 1130, investigators believed that he would probably had left earlier than that. Putting him and Crystal in the same location between 1115 and 1130. And that gave him about an hour or less driving time before he had to meet his 1230 curfew. Mm-hmm. So, when detectives arrived back at the station, they told Ken that he'd spoken to his parents. And that his parents were not going to be visiting. They said his parents were upset. And Kim asked if they had spoke to his daddy too. Which I find so odd that an 18-year-old is saying mama and daddy. <laughs> but, I mean, and maybe it's a southern thing. Like, I know a lot of people still call their mom mama. Mm-hmm. I don't know many 18-year-olds that still call their dad daddy. But again, I don't have a relationship with my father. So maybe that's a common occurrence. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I would call, I would call my daddy daddy if... I am, like, speaking to him, but I would not be telling people, like, my daddy, my mama. I'd be, I'd say my mother, my father. Yeah, I still don't call my mom mama. Or when I call my dad, I don't call my dad. But when I speak with my mom, (laughs) I call her mom or Lisa if she needs it. (laughs) Uh, I will still say mama sometimes, but only in direct conversation with her. Usually, sometimes to express the point. <laughs> yeah, that's like, Mama, when I, listen. That's when I use the first name when I need to get forceful with her and get my point across. <laughs> so, um, detectives was like, "Yeah, we spoke with your parents, and that his parents had told him to go ahead and tell the truth." And they said, "Like your mom wrote a letter, and she's asking you to be honest." And Ken like 
kind of got quiet and but he didn't say anything he was still saying like he's like i am telling the truth i didn't kill anybody so detective knowles knowing that ken was an active church member asked ken if he had asked god to forgive him for what he had done Mm -hmm. and it was at this point when ken broke down and began full-on sobbing for several minutes and then Detective Knowles asked Ken again the same question, and Ken replied, yes. Ken was asked again at this time, can we return? Can we turn the recorder on? But he said no. And they didn't really need it. They had several officers and detectives in the room that could corroborate what was being said. So Detective Knowles was like, okay, well, like, tell us what happened. The night Crystal was murdered. So, Ken said that he had taken the long way home um, after he left the racetrack because he had a little bit of time before he had to be home. And so, driving through Conway, he saw Crystal at a stoplight and was able to get her attention. So, they drove to the middle school where Crystal parked her car. Mm -hmm. She just took her keys and got into Ken's car. He said the two of them drove to Collins Jolly Road where they engaged in unprotected but consensual sex and he said that he got angry and lost it when Cran, when Cran, when <laughs> Crystal told him that if he got her pregnant, she would tell everybody that he raped her. He said he went into a frenzy, grabbed the knife that he kept in his car, and began stabbing Crystal as she got out to get dressed. He didn't give any specifics other than that. Um, like he didn't mention the complete mutilation of Crystal's body, only that he'd stabbed her. Mm-hmm. And the damage that had been done to Crystal's body was not indicative at all of any kind of consensual sex. Mm -hmm. There were abrasions left on and in her vagina and anus, and they were put there by brutal force. There was nothing consensual about what happened in Ken's car that night, save for the fact that she may have gotten in his car willingly because he was her friend. Mm -hmm. Ken said he just didn't remember anything except, except stabbing her, And then feeling extremely frightened and frantic when he realized what he'd done. So he said he'd panicked. He dragged Crystal's body from the scene of the attack, tossed her body into the ditch, and then threw the knife as far as he could and drove home quickly. He said he didn't get very bloody, which would have been a complete fucking lie. He completely disemboweled Crystal and Mm -hmm. threw her body in a ditch. The amount of blood that was left in those drag marks, because in the forensic files, like, they show some of the crime scene video, and it is a massive pool of blood. There is no way that he would not have gotten Mm -hmm. very bloody from that attack. No way. (laughs) And again, he mentioned he was greeted by his mother at 12.15 when he got home. Like, Like, you know... That, that's not right. He said, then Bonnie had called and... So, investigators knew, like, two things had to be a lie about that statement. Uh-huh. Because, again, there was no way he didn't get covered in Crystal's blood. Like, he literally disemboweled her and pulled her body across the road. And two, the knife. Ken didn't just throw that. Like, the entire, like, every square inch of Collins Jolly Road around Crystal had been dumped, had been searched, and they never found the knife, ever. So, still to this day? No. They don't know where the knife is. <clears throat> So, and I don't know if investigators realized it at the time, but, like, during one of his very first interactions with Officer Petty, 
He said that he had spoken to Bonnie at 1.15 a.m., not 12.15 a.m. Mm-hmm. And Bonnie had told investigators that when she spoke that night, he had told her he had just gotten home. Mm-hmm. And that was 1.15, not 12.15. So there's a little bit of a time lapse there, Ken. Yeah. Um, I don't know if investigators realized that. Either way, they didn't point it out. And they had their confession, which is exactly what they wanted and needed. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter. Um, once Ken had signed his type confession... Detective Knowles and Agent Caldwell had left to make copies, and he was left alone in the interrogation room with Agent Streeter. During that time, Ken told Agent Streeter that he did feel better after confessing, and that he said up until that point, he had been frightened and thought about going to jail every time he'd seen a police car drive by. He said his confession alleviated some of the guilt he had been feeling. Mm -hmm. Over to, like, on his ride over to the detention center, he certainly appeared to be relieved because he talked about football and weightlifting. Oh. Yeah, now he can just make conversation and be happy. Yeah, yeah. Sarcastically. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, that attitude changed once he was in custody. He immediately began stating that his confession was coerced. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was placed on suicide watch. Ken told his mama and his lawyers... That detectives had made him feel that everyone that was a support system for Ken had turned against him. He said that made him feel like he had to confess. And that was the only way he was going to get out of the interrogation. Now, keep in mind, he was only questioned for like six hours. Mm-hmm. And it was in the daytime. Um, and there have been people who have been questioned a lot longer than that. That haven't given false confessions. Now, I'm not saying false confessions aren't a thing because they totally they are, are a thing. Yes. They totally <laughs> are a thing. But Ken's was not a false confession. No. It, no. No. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, and while detectives purp- purposely had used the tactic of making Ken feel isolated, that is not illegal. Mm-hmm. And Ken is guilty of sin. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, they have DNA matching. Yeah. And his yeah. blood subtype is so rare. Yep. Yeah. You are that one in 250 million, sir. Mm-hmm. So, Ken Register was officially indicted on murder charges in April of 1992. Now, while preparing for trial, lead prosecutor Ralph Wilson was a bit concerned about being able to get in conviction. Now, remember, DNA was not a well-known form of evidence in 1991, and it had never been used in a court in South Carolina. It's extremely Mm science-based, not something juries at the time were used to hearing. And even now, it can be extremely confusing when they go into complete detail. Wilson was going based on what he'd heard about Ken from the community. And Ken had been painted as a hard worker, and he was friendly, and he went to church, and he did all these good things. So when Wilson began looking into Ken's history, he discovered a few things about Ken that most people did not know. Mm -hmm. Like when Ken was 15, he'd been arrested and served with a warrant for unlawful use of a telephone. Because Ken had made over 100 obscene phone calls to a young woman and her mother. Ooh. Yeah. Um, in those phone calls, just going to give a quick trigger warning here. Ken had said things like, I'm going to fuck you. I'm going to make you scream, and I'm going to cut you open. Amongst other completely graphic and disgusting things mm-hmm. that I'm not going to repeat. And the cutting of someone open seems to be exactly what yeah. happened to poor Funny Crystal. Funny that a lot of what he said to this young girl and her mother was eerily similar to what happened to Crystal three Mm -hmm. years later. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Initially, the young woman and her mother had asked the telephone company if they could trace the calls, um, but the company could only give, like, the general vicinity, not the exact location. I don't know why they didn't call the police, because the police definitely had the ability to do it, but maybe they didn't, like, think of that. I mean, it's a small town. I'm, I'm not sure police would at that time in the 90s. Like, I don't think it would have yeah. been a thing. They would have been, like, it's just a prank caller. Yeah. Um, but I feel like a prank call is like, is your refrigerator running? <laughs> True. Um, you know, something like that. Even like, even though it's perverted and gross, just like a heavy breather, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I guess you are right on that aspect, but sometimes I just yeah. feel like I can see early nineties kind of brushing that off. Oh, for sure. For sure. That's mm-hmm. probably exactly what would have happened. Like he's literally saying, I'm going to mm-hmm. fuck you and cut you open. Like. That's not a prank call. Like, that's that's not. No, it's a threat. That's terrifying. So, the young girl had this idea, like, if I can keep him on the phone long enough, I may be able to recognize his voice. Mm -hmm. And it worked, Mm -hmm. kind of. She recognized the background noises as being that of a mechanic garage. And don't you know, she'd recently had work done on her car and went down to the garage. And this garage was owned by Ken's uncle. And he worked there. Oh. So she asked to speak to the person she had originally spoken with, found out his name and his phone number, and when she called him, she recognized the voice on the other end of the line. <laughs> it was Ken Register. Sorry, if you hear that little squeaking noise, <laughs> Oliver's playing with his little bird ball. And he's not even hitting it that hard. He's just kind of tapping he's it. He's just gingerly tapping it. Okay, can you get that from him? Yes. <laughs> So, this young girl goes back to the shop. And Ken immediately starts saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But ultimately, he confessed and he apologized. Oh, kind of like what happened in the future. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, she wanted to press charges. But when officers found out that he was only 15, 15 calling somebody saying, I want to fuck you. That's, there's something wrong. Major like, red that's, flag. That's not a prank <clears throat> call, y'all. That ain't. Mm-mm. Um, so, but when they found out he was 15, they released him into the custody of his sister, and his case was turned over to the Department of Juvenile Services. So, years later, when this young woman is watching TV coverage of Crystal's murder, the coverage stated that Ken had no prior record. Mm-hmm. And the woman was like, the fuck he doesn't. <laughs> so, she called to find out what happened with the juvenile, the, the case in juvenile court, mm-hmm. and turns out his case file didn't exist. Coincidentally, Ken's aunt worked at the Department of Juvenile Justice or the Juvenile oh. Services. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good goodness. Yeah. Like, he worked, mm-hmm. his uncle owned a garage. His aunt worked there. Yeah. Let's just, this budding serial killer, let's just, let's mm-hmm. just protect him at all costs, please. Um, Wilson also learned that Ken was facing charges for indecent exposure. In September of 1991, two months before Crystal was murdered. He had exposed himself to two college students uh, at the Coastal Carolina University campus. He'd pulled up beside them to ask for directions, and when they got close, he pulled his dick out, shook it at him, and told them to come get it. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming that their immediate response was one of disgust. Yes. Which, in that forensic film episode, (laughs) it is so funny, because they're like, ew, ew. Um, so that's probably what they did. Yeah. And they began to walk away. So he started dropping off, but one of the women had like the wherewithal and she yelled, wait. (laughs) 
And he's limped on his brakes because he's like, she's about to come get it. Mm-hmm. But instead, she got his license plate number and she called the cops. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. Yes. So initially, he denied it. Of but course. again, ultimately confessed. Mm-hmm. So here's the pattern. Yes. Yeah, there, I'm seeing a pattern here. Yeah. Uh, and when Wilson learned of this pending charge, he wanted this case to be tried before Crystal's murder case because it would be extremely beneficial to have this conviction mm-hmm. prior to her trial. The jury in that case deliberated only two hours before finding him guilty of <laughs> indecent exposure. Okay. So, uh, he also discovered from Ken's co-workers that he had an affinity for porn. Yeah. Mm. Uh, he would stop at a local convenience store in the morning on the way to work to purchase the newest porn magazine. <laughs> he told the cashier they were for his boss. But then he'd take them to work and try them to his coworkers, and he kept them in his truck so his mama wouldn't find out mm-hmm. that they were in his house. Additionally, Ken's coworkers and his high school football coach shared times that Ken had shown extreme anger and a loss of control. He'd slammed a coworker against a wall after the coworker was playfully joking with him, and he'd gotten in his coach's face after the coach sided with a ref that had called a foul on Ken during a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, when the, when he went to trial for Crystal's murder in 93, the prosecution felt they had a pretty good case against Ken. You know, they had DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. Evidence proving Ken wasn't that sweet going kid, that sweet church going kid most townspeople believed him to be. Uh-huh. And they had a confession that he'd signed. Now, granted, he had recanted it. Of course. But he still signed it. Mm-hmm. So they called multiple witnesses to testify about Ken's character as well as the brutality of Crystal's murder. Um, at one point during the trial, when medical examiner James Downs took the stand to describe Crystal's injuries, one of the jurors began to sob, and a brief recess had to be taken in order to allow for her to regain composure. Bonnie took the stand to testify how she had viewed Kim before the murder and share like how much she and Crystal had trusted him. She did share one interesting fact that had a new light shed on it after Crystal's death. Uh-huh. About a week before Crystal's murder, Crystal had told Bonnie that Ken had been asking her to go out again. And Bonnie told Crystal that he must think a lot of her if he's asking to go out with her with him having a girlfriend. Now, oh. granted, this was not 1991. I'm not victim blaming or victim shaming Bonnie. Mm-hmm. She meant nothing wrong. Like, nothing bad yeah. about that. However... In 2022 light, that's just someone that doesn't know how to take a no. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, but Crystal mm-hmm. told Bonnie she didn't want to date Ken because he was a chain smoker and all he wanted to do was have sex and that he wasn't as nice when he was out with his friends as he acted when he was at home. Mm-hmm. Now, when police were doing their investigation, they had searched Ken's car and they had found minute traces of blood, but it wasn't enough to be sent off for testing. During the trial, it was revealed that Ken had taken his car to a local shop to be cleaned and have new tires ordered on November 22nd, just a few days after Crystal had been murdered. Did he take it to his uncle's shop? No, it wasn't his uncle's shop. Um, <laughs> one of the shop workers actually stated that the car only appeared to need an exterior cleaning, mm-hmm. but Ken insisted that the interior get a thorough cleaning. And then he took it back again less than a month later on December 19th to have it thoroughly cleaned again. The prosecution also called various other witnesses 
to provide testimony about Ken's statements after Crystal's murder. And then they called college students that Ken had exposed himself to and the young woman that had received Ken's disgusting phone calls. Mm-hmm. And that was all very damning testimony. Um, the defense kind of like, you know, they're probably saying in their mind, fuck, like, but they placed their focus on trying to convince jurors that Ken had been coerced and confess- into confessing mm-hmm. and that his confession was unreliable. Their expert witness, Dr. Richard Offshe, a, soci- a sociology professor at UC Berkeley, provided testimony like stating like the point of an interrogation is to elicit a confession, which it is. Yes. And that's what happened here. But he also pointed out that Ken had left out key points about Crystal's murder and that his confession only included pieces of information that had been suggested to him by investigators. Mm-hmm. Um, Ken took the stand to describe how investigators had coerced him into confessing, how they had scared him, blah, 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 mm-hmm. woe is me, I'm a victim, shut the fuck up, no you're not. <laughs> um, but, like, Ken didn't do himself any favors by taking the stand. Like, he, even though he stuck to a story about, like, not killing Crystal, he... Like, he would remain pretty emotionalist, and you would think, and the jurors agreed, like, if you are on trial for murdering your best friend, you're going to be upset. You're going to show some emotion. He didn't cry. He didn't get upset. He didn't talk about how much he cared for Crystal or how sorry he was that Bonnie lost her only child. Yeah. None of that. And then his mother gave testimony talking about, like, how much she loved Ken, which she did. That was her son. Yeah. Um, No doubt in that. No. And she talked about, like, how normal he was and what a kind young man he had been. There there was also mentioned, like, that the DNA testing had been faulty, which it wasn't. They had had great samples that were intact. And, like, the match on the DNA was spot on. Mm -hmm. Um, In rebuttal to Dr. Offshe's testimony, the prosecution called him Park Dietz. Park Dietz is a forensic psychiatrist and a bit of a celebrity in that world he had testified at the murder trial of numerous serial killers most notably jeffrey dahmer mm-hmm. um dr deet stated that it was completely common for killers to give like only partially truthful confessions as ken had done and to leave out key elements especially when a crime is sexually motivated or has sexual elements to it um, because a lot of times that sexual element is a little bit more shameful than something else. Uh-huh. Like, they can appear macho, like, yeah. brutally murdering somebody. Mm-hmm. But that sexual component is a little bit more shameful mm-hmm. for whatever reason. They may also leave out other key components to protect another party that may have been involved or to keep additional evidence like a memento from being discovered. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, Crystal's uh, car keys and the knife that was used to murder her were never found. Um, and then the prosecution also called Dr. Robert Hazelwood of the FBI in Quantico, Virginia, and one of the original FBI profilers, to give testimony about sexual sadists and sexually motivated crimes. Mm-hmm. And... And Dr. Hazelwood shared that sexually motivated crimes, like, they often begin as fantasy. And then the person experiencing those fantasies began acting them out. And they can do that through sexual acts with a partner or an unwilling victim. 
um, sometimes through drawings or viewing those acts depicted in pornographic images or video, making obscene phone calls, mm -hmm. ETC. Um, Hazel had stated that he believed that the obscene phone calls and the indecent exposure came from a, a sexually sadistic motivation to instill fear in the recipients and to make them feel degraded, which is exactly what he was doing. And mm -hmm. when Ken had been questioned about why he pulled his dick out and waved it at college students, he said that the women had made him feel like trash. And I'm just like, sir, you are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you take your floppy wiener and drop on. <laughs> so, um... <clears throat> In the end of the trial, Ken was found guilty of the murder of Crystal Faytod. South Carolina carries the death penalty. However, jurors said they could not convince an 18-year-old to death. Mm -hmm. So they sentenced him to life plus 30 years. Um, and he's currently still incarcerated at Broad River Secure Facility in Columbia, South Carolina. He was actually eligible. He was able to have a parole hearing in February of this year, uh -huh. but he waived his right to the parole hearing. Um, in the weeks leading up to the hearing, a petition was going around to keep him from getting parole, and it got over 2,700 signatures. Wow. He's currently 48, and he will be eligible for parole again in two years. Mm. Which I don't think he'll get. Good. Um, he because the parole board likes to, one, uh, hear the person accept responsibility, which he's never done mm -hmm. ever. Um, and shut like see some remorse and he doesn't have any of that either. And if he got out, he would do it again. Like yes. there is no doubt in my mind, if he had gotten away with murdering crystal, which he thought he was going mm -hmm. to, he would have killed somebody else. Yeah. He already had that repeating pattern. Like I'm not trying to make light of it or anything, but he could have been like a real life scream killer where he would call, make obscene calls and then potentially kill people. Oh, he would have definitely killed people. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that there was an escalation there. Yeah. Like he went from making a phone call to somebody that he couldn't see. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, threatening somebody is a little bit different than waving your dick at them. Yes, but, but pulling your penis out to strangers and waving it at them, telling them to come and get it—that is face to face. That is mm -hmm. close contact. That is an escalation. Yes. And you don't just go from that. You don't go from brutally murdering somebody the way Crystal was to not ever doing it again. Exactly. And he didn't just do it to a stranger. He did it to somebody that trusted him. Mm -hmm. Bonnie Faye Todd never recovered from the loss of her daughter. She, I mean, when you watch interviews with her, it's like the life is drained out of her. She was so completely broken after Crystal passed oh, away. Bet. She and Detective Knowles had remained close over the years. Like, they would call, visit. Um, Bonnie had said Crystal was her reason, reason for living. And then after Crystal's death, she didn't have anything left to live for. It, I mean, and she would go and she would visit Crystal. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I didn't mention this earlier, but at one point in their investigation, and this, like, really broke my heart, and I don't know why it broke me the way that it did, but they had set up video cameras because a lot of times killers will go visit mm -hmm. their victims. Um, so they had set a camera up on, at Crystal's grave. And the only person that ever visited was Bonnie. Aww. Like, it re that really got me. Yeah. Bonnie passed away in September of 2014. Um, you know, and like now 
a lot of like Detective Knowles and everybody's like, at least now, like she's with her daughter. Absolutely. Because that was a long time. Like that was over 20 years that she had to live without her daughter. Mm-hmm. And like after her husband passed away, like Crystal was her whole world. Yeah. And then it was completely shattered when Crystal was murdered. And it's sad, you know, we've talked about this before, it's sad when you lose a loved one, mm-hmm. but especially, like, this is one of the most heinous cases that I've covered. It's one of the most heinous cases that I've, like, you know, actually, that stuck with me. Yeah. And to know what your child went through mm-hmm. in their last moments. I don't for one second believe they had consensual sex. No. I think Ken probably forced himself on Crystal. Mm-hmm. And I did not like... And again, I had a lot of issues with that Forensic Files episode. Uh-huh. Like, it just... The way that they portrayed Crystal... And maybe... And I'm not saying, like, people have to be angels to, you know, be safe from murder. Mm-hmm. But they just... I don't know. I, I don't like the way that they portrayed their interactions... Yeah. I think they made her a, they they made it look like she was having consensual sex. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's what the evidence shows. Yeah. And it, I don't know. I, I had a lot of issues with that Forensic Files episode, if y'all haven't noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Ken will be in jail for the rest of his life. Where he belongs. Yeah, he's currently 48. He'll be 50 when he... Is eligible for parole again. I, again, I don't think he'll take it mm-hmm. or get it. And this, I mean, he waived his right to the parole. He didn't even have it this time because he waived his right to it. Uh-huh. And his lawyer, who was his lawyer that defended him in the trial in 93, was like, I don't know why he waived his right. And I'm like, you don't know why he waived his really? right? Really? You don't know. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. He, he is where he belongs because I feel mm-hmm. like if he got out, he's still a danger to people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and 50 is not that old. Mm-mm. He could still hurt somebody. He's not an elderly person that can't no. walk. Like, he's still very capable of causing damage mm-hmm. to somebody. You're absolutely so, right. He totally could if he was free, but. Yeah. I'm going to hope that never happens. No, he's where he belongs. Bonnie's finally with Crystal again. Mm-hmm. And just, it's really sad. It is. it is really sad to think about Crystal's last moments. Yeah, it, she was far too young to have been 17. to have her life taken away. Seventeen, like that's really young. Mm-hmm. She's and still at, a child. At one point in um, Ken's investigation, he briefly mentioned that Crystal liked to sleep around, and you know, Crystal could have fucked the entire football team, mm-hmm. and she still didn't deserve that. Absolutely not. So, it doesn't really matter who Crystal slept with or mm-hmm. how much Crystal had to drink or who she hung out with. None of that really mattered. No. Um, you are still a monster. Mm-hmm. You're still a monster and you did the worst thing that you could possibly do to somebody else, especially somebody that trusted you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You took advantage of her in every way. Yeah. Yes. So, um, Her class, though, at her graduation, they left a empty seat for her it was Aww. they did like they really like wanted to make bonnie feel that she was there mm-hmm. and it, it was very sweet um, so but yeah that's that is the <laughs> murder of crystal faye todd and this is one that has stuck with me i told you earlier you know mm-hmm. there are some that stick with me from the first time i hear them and crystal's one that stuck with me and when we decided that we were going to start this podcast this was one of the because we had made lists of like what uh-huh. we wanted to cover and Crystal's case was on my list. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I knew how heinous it was, and I was just like, I, I'm going to try to ease into it. Yeah. So, but yes. Well, I'm glad you covered it and, and put that information out there and told her story. Yeah. Yes. It's tragic, but it's still, I think, important to keep the victim's story out there. Yes. And, and remember, like, again, Crystal died a brutal death, but before that happened, mm -hmm. Crystal was a living, breathing person, and yes. she had a favorite band, and she had a favorite food, and mm -hmm. she had friends that loved her, and she had ideas and thoughts, and she had, like, a specific way of writing. Like, she had a personality. She had a way of writing. She had a way of yeah. talking and walking, and those are the things that need to be mm -hmm. remembered. Exactly. Not, not the finality of her last moments. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. So, but do you want to give out our socials? Yes. If you want to reach out to us, you can follow us on Instagram at Monsters and Murder Pod and send us an email. We always love to hear from people. Yes, please. Um, at Monsters and Murder Pod at gmail.com. Yes. <laughs> so, until next time, I hope you guys enjoy your Thanksgiving. Yes. Uh, I'm super excited for some stuffing and sausage balls. Exactly. And by the time this releases, you'll probably be having Thanksgiving leftovers, but yes. still enjoy them again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hope y'all know that I will be enjoying that. Mm. I'm This year I'm doing a charcuterie board. Nice. And I'm making like a dessert platter, which I'm very, I'm going to make an apple pie mm -hmm. and a pumpkin pie, but then I'm going to be making a lot of other stuff. Yes, we will eat tons of delicious food. Yes, so anyway, <laughs> until next time. Stay safe, everyone. And don't be a dick. <laughs> Bye. Bye.